Um, so Dan wants to talk about anxiety. Sure. No, I just, I just want to know what it's like to sit down in front of microphones, knowing that a bunch of people are about to hear what you have to say. Like, how do you, pro- you're both teachers. How do you process that? I mean, it's abstract, right? And if you're in front of a microphone, like you're listening to yourself. The question is, do you like what you hear <laughs> when you're listening to yourself, right? Um, I, th- I think there's a point where, what do I want to say? People become academics. Well, people co- become academics for a lot of reasons, but a lot of people become academics because they want to sit in a quiet room with their books. And then it turns out the job of an academic is actually to get up in front of people <laughs> all the time and like be with people and do like in in intense amounts of like emotion work and cognitive work. There's also interpersonal work. And I don't know, maybe that's why Patrick and I both ended up in some ways with, you know, thinking about psychoanalysis. I mean, we're not clinicians, right? Um, But you're always toggling between the abstract and like the really concrete. And, And I mean, Patrick, I know like when you teach, like a question that you're always asking is like, well, how does this cash out? Like, I think that's much more your approach to psychoanalysis than mine, which I mean, to be fair, I am a philosophy professor. So. Wait, how does this cash out? What does that mean? It's actually kind of a William James phrase, actually. Like he keeps on a uh, thing. Bill James, really Bill James, my buddy, Bill James always is, is <laughs> like, what's the cash value. Right. And it's, it's, it's a nice kind of Americanism, right? It's, it's like, well, what, yeah, like people dismiss an idea being like, well, that and a token or a Metro card will get you on the subway. I guess I don't know what. what I think it's that is. and $2 will get you a cup of coffee. That, yeah, that and well, $6, $6 will get, will get you, get you a cup of coffee. <laughs> <laughs> fucking knows. But, but like it, it is this idea that like you have to have a, I mean, and, and I suppose it's not just William James, but also the broader American tradition of pragmatism, both, you know, with a capital P and a little p, is, is this idea that a concept only has value if it can have some sort of, traction or or real world utility you know which is above all measured in 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 financial terms uh but yeah the cash value of a concept right but like i don't know i mean but that means also an example right in in some ways like when you're when when you're thinking about psychoanalysis you're always thinking about how it plays out politically yeah i'm always thinking about politics or i'm thinking about like teaching i mean but like but like for me too like and and i guess this is a a two-parter answer to the initial question Mm -hmm. right i I, I, I'm on, I give interviews constantly. Yeah. Right. Uh, you know, I, and it's I, I, oftentimes on the record, oftentimes off the record. So I was just doing deep background stuff, but like, you know, in any given week, I'll talk to two or three reporters and when stuff is going really bad, it'll, it'll be many more than that. Right. Mm-hmm. You know, I've done TV and, and, and various web spots and radio spots and shit. And it, I don't know. It's, it's always a conversation directed at the person who's talking to me first and foremost, right? Who I generally know, at least insofar as they've arranged the interview and I have certain talking points. And and generally I think a lot of being or doing journalism work is repeating yourself over and over again. But teaching is something a little bit different, right? Cause you gotta, you gotta anticipate what people are saying and you gotta like do work to hold the classroom together emotionally and otherwise, yeah, you know, um, and this, this thing is a third thing, right? Where it's, it's like we have to talk, but, but, but in a way where we are not 100% sure who the audience is. We want the audience to, to open up and feel comfortable. And so we have to sort of do that ourselves. But also like there's a, I don't even know how to really say this. Like, like it's so much of it is about the parasocial relationship, right? Like yeah. establishing this kind of field of 
transference, which is a term that we'll talk about a lot later. It is. Right? And yeah. I mean, I think like there's the, there's the, the wager and this is, you know, sorry to like anticipate. We'll talk more about Jacques Lacan and in, in, in future episodes, but like the wager is that like the letter will arrive at its destination. Right. And they should uh, hear dollar signs when it does. Yes. To Ordinary Unhappiness, a podcast on psychoanalysis, politics, pop culture, and the ways we suffer now in collaboration with Parapraxis Magazine. I'm Abby Kluchin. Um, let me see, how do I want to introduce myself? Uh, I am a philosophy and gender studies professor. I'm not a clinician. I have made my way to Freud and psychoanalysis through a whole host of, uh, I don't know, eccentric circuits that <laughs> kind of led me led me there. Yeah, uh, I'm uh, I'm Patrick or, or Pat Blanchfield, whichever is entirely fine uh, by me. Uh, and my deal is, well, I mean, people who are listening to this because of they've encountered me have either encountered me as a, a teacher or a writer or a journalist or uh, just a, a wise ass on Twitter, uh, in which case, thank you, but also I'm sorry. Uh, <laughs> and uh, my deal is... Uh, I, you know, I have academic training. I have, uh, did my four years of clinical training in psychoanalysis, uh, but I'm not a clinician. Uh, and, and, and more to the point, I'm just someone who, uh, well, you know, I, I came across Freud in a, a dusty old library when I was like 14 years old and, uh, have more or less been reading him and other people in the psychoanalytic tradition and since, and, uh, thinking psychoanalytically and, and thinking about, things in ways that I guess just are psychoanalytically oriented, but that just to me feel like thinking. So yeah, I'm, I guess I'm kind of freakish like that. And uh, it's delightful to be here. Today we are going to be, we're going to be doing some ground clearing uh, to start things off. And we're going to do that by posing a frankly impossible question, which is appropriate because we're talking about what Freud called um, in his one of his last writings, analysis, terminable and interminable, we called it the impossible profession. Um, we're going to ask, what is psychoanalysis? And we have a host of, uh, I mean, I almost hesitate to call them answers. Let's call them responses to that, to that kind of original prompt. It's entirely appropriate that we'd have like a ton of different answers to this question, because if there's one thing that we want to accomplish with this podcast and, and which hopefully is uh, a reason also why you are listening right now is we want to approach this thing called psychoanalysis in a way that allows people to ask all kinds of questions about it. And that reflects the fact that there are many different kinds of psychoanalysis that psychoanalysis mm -hmm. is a, is a, is a tradition of, of inquiry. It's a, you could call it a discursive community. I.e., it's a whole bunch of different people in different fields doing different things. Uh, it's a set of recurrent questions. It's the sum total of experiences, probably numbering in the millions of hours of encounters between clinicians and their patients or analysts and analysands, if you want to use that mm -hmm. terminology. But also it's the uh, it's a thing that's inspired artists from, you know, surrealist to David Lynch to, 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 to members of the Harlem Renaissance. Right. So, like, you can't singularly define what psychoanalysis is without from the get-go acknowledging that that 
thing, that definition has to include multitudes and has to include like a plurality of perspectives on it. So, so like another way of saying this, right? And I think this is particularly important because with psychoanalysis, unlike a lot of other traditions or bodies of knowledge, there's a tendency to refer back to this one person who supposedly founded it, right? Namely Freud. And we're going to talk a lot about Freud, but also about that uh, recurrent tendency and the, the problems of it, the shortcomings of it, and also the possibilities that it kind of generates. But the, the trap is to think that there is one authoritative, total, absolutely 100% correct definition of what psychoanalysis is, right? Uh, and it, it, this is something that was uh, once explained to me actually by a, a psychoanalytic mentor of mine who, in addressing the question of how to define psychoanalysis, borrowed uh, from one of Freud's sort of classic jokes, and, and I should say here, Freud's humor and Freud's jokes are not necessarily very funny. A lot of them are basically 19th century, like, uh, philo slash anti-Semitic humor, kind of, like, or stuff that, like, is in the space where it's like, oh, these Jews, they're so crafty and funny, but also they're so crafty. It's, you know, it's, it's He knew a how crazy. to kill a joke, also. Yeah. I mean, he wrote a whole book, literally, called Jokes in, in Their Relation to the Unconscious, which is like, let me make every joke unfunny. <laughs> It's a punishing book. I know it, we, it may have some, we may have Alex on, Alex Colston uh, at some point on to talk about like, he thinks there's some funny things in there, but, but, but like, but, but yeah, like, like the joke here, which is about that defining psychoanalysis, but also about like the plurality of opinions on psychoanalysis are like, well, you know, you have four psychoanalysts in a room, you have six, seven, eight different definitions of what psychoanalysis is, i.e. individual psychoanalysts will have multiple possibly contradictory or, or, or complementary or in any event, uh, plural definitions of this thing that they all supposedly understand and are doing. And, and, and the point there though, is not to say that this thing doesn't exist, but rather that it both is made up of a plurality of perspectives and experiences, but also it's really attuned to, well, differences in perspectives or, or differences in experiences or to phenomena that are bigger than just the sum of their parts or that include parts that can be in interesting relationships of conflict or, um, productive generation or tension or synthesis or whatnot. Yeah. I mean, I think one of the things I would want to mention here also, um, and again, I'm coming to this from the discipline of philosophy, which is really interested in logic and thus like hates Freud mostly, except in, in certain like specific instances is that psychoanalysis is I'm not going to say it's the study of ambivalence, but I would say it's underwritten by the logic of ambivalence, um, which is to say, like, both P and not P. Like, not only is that, like, not a problem in psychoanalysis, but it's, like, necessarily true. Like, both of those things have to be true. Um, so, I, I mean, I, I tend to think of, of ambivalence as being productive for but yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and I should say, so like this term also, that's another that's that thing to sort of lean into, like ambiv like two things I want to highlight in what you just said before I give like, you know, this before I tie a bow on this. Right. Sure. One, like ambivalence, this idea that you can feel two more than one way about the same thing. Right. This is a quintessentially psychoanalytic idea. Right. This idea that you don't unlike in that example of sort of like a philosophical orientation you gave where mm -hmm. everyone, everything is like logical postulates. P is not Q and X is not Y. Uh, the human mind or the human psyche, if we want to call it that, 
is capable of not just containing contradictions, but in some ways operates along the path of contradictions. Yeah, I mean, I think that's what I was trying to say, but in in, in different language. Yeah, I'm not saying you weren't trying to say it. Yeah, I, yeah, I, yeah. No, 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 I'm I, agreeing with yeah, you. I, I, but, but what <laughs> what, what I want to also like say here though too is that like the idea is 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 it's as opposed to visions of like the person or of uh, discourses of knowledge where it's like you have contradiction and then I don't know. Imagine like a sci-fi robot, like the head explodes, right? You, that, that's how you defeat. That's how you defeat the robot in the sci-fi or the video game, right? You're like, you know, but this does not compute. This does not compute, and then boom. Like actually, no. People have contradictory feelings about things. They have contradictory opinions, and that's how it moves. And and that's like, that is what's really interesting about them, and that's how a lot of life proceeds. So, what I'm trying to to telegraph here is that ambivalence is not just okay, it's also super interesting. Yeah. And it's, I mean, I think, you know, we were, we were earlier, like we were introducing ourselves and saying a little bit, I, I mean, the thing kind of floating there is about like, what's our expertise or like the question of expertise. Um, and, and I think that like, it, it's helpful to think about speaking from, from a position of, of ambivalence also. Um, and, and, Maybe that's one way to get into. I, I know we're not like going to introduce, you know, every psychoanalytic concept today, but th- this might be a good moment to talk about the idea of the subject supposed to know, because I think that's a place from which we are speaking, and that's something. Although you know, you and I have have different versions of psychoanalysis, right? We both have multiple versions of psychoanalysis to to riff on what you were just saying. Um. I think that is a shared commitment we have to, to, to using that idea, which is an idea from, from uh, the French psychoanalyst Jacques Lacan, who you know people have different ideas about. You can love him, you can hate him, um, but he is one of the best readers of Freud that we've ever had, you know, regardless of, of your feelings about him. But this idea of the subject supposed to know is one that I think we want to work with and that we also want to um, show the way that, that it is it is merely a position. Yeah. It's not it's not one that you uh, it's one that you inhabit, but it's not one that you are. Yeah. So, so like this is actually a, a very cool thing because it's one of those concepts that I think actually does have like cash value. And maybe we'll talk about that <laughs> in a second. Right. Because it's one of these ones that you can actually use to understand circumstances in your everyday life, but also maybe deploy to, well, for good or evil, hopefully you'll use it for good, right? Uh, and, and and again, we will give you a couple tight definitions of what psychoanalysis is in a little bit, but we kind of want to set a vibe here and talk about sort of having knowledge about this in the first place, right? So I promise you'll get the tight stuff soon. But like, for the French psychoanalyst Jacques Lacan, the one of the major preoccupations, and he's a figure who is, is writes in the second half of the 20th century, you know, and particularly during the 50s, 60s, and 70s, uh, and who announces his work as a return to Freud, which is something we're going to talk about a lot, both in terms of Lacan, but also in terms of what it means to return to Freud. But like, bracket all that. What Lacan kind of gets at here, or, or with this notion of the, the subject supposed to know, and that's that subject, like a person, like the fancy word for like a a speaking subject or the subject of a political system, uh, supposed to know. And there are little hyphens between all of them. If you want to, the French is sujet supposé savoir, right? But it's it's a one thing. It's a subject who is supposed to know. What that, what that kind of underscores or what that's supposed to dramatize is this idea that knowledge is never just an abstract, impersonal thing. Knowledge is never... Uh, just like what's on a USB stick 
or in a stack of dusty volumes or written on the side of some like marble monument. Knowledge is, well, it exists in what you could call a field of human relations, right? It's knowledge about people and the world generally, but also, and this is the key thing, it's knowledge that is articulated by people, documented by people, and possessed by people in ways that are that can be proprietary, that can be uh, sharing, insightful, and giving, but that in any event involve dynamics of power and anxiety. Yeah, and I mean, going with your previous uh, let's give things cash value a la William James, right? Um, I think that, like, I think that sounds abstract, um, which is not necessarily a bad thing. But if you think about any situation that you've ever been in where you are in a position where you're looking for someone else to give you the thing that you don't have, um, like if you're a student in a class, um, that person at the front of the classroom, you experience them as the subject supposed to know. Um, you and, and in reality, and I can tell you this because like I am a professor, the person who is walking to the front of the classroom is just experiencing themselves as a, you know, kind of conglomeration of uh, perceptions and, and thoughts and like whatever earworm is, is in their head at the moment. You know, they, they don't have a sense of themselves as like, I am possessed of absolute knowledge, right? But it's a function. Um, I mean, it's 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 also the function that underwrites my talking into a microphone right now. The very idea that I might have, you know, something valuable to to transmit. Um, I mean, but it's I, I'm using I'm reaching for the teaching example just because it's 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 close to my everyday life. But there's so many. I mean, you can think about a pastor, um, or a confessor, or, or or here's another. I think a good example, and, and again. We're already performing some psychoanalytic type thinking here, uh, and it should become clearer as we do this because we're going to be using examples both from everyday life, but also from like high stress situations and also from like childhood and from like dramatic events in history. Like these are all going to be kind of related, right? And those are the fields of data sometimes for psychoanalytic theory. But imagine, for example, like uh, those times when you were a kid and you could, didn't know how to read, mm. right? And, and you'd have a bunch of adults talking about you. Or rather, they'd be talking and they'd be using words that you didn't necessarily know how what all the words meant. And then sometimes they'd say something like, well, we really need to make sure uh, that we put so-and-so to bed because otherwise they're going to have a T-A-N-T-R-U-M. And like you start getting really, really upset because like you don't know what that you, you, you don't know what you can't you don't know what that word is, but you know they're talking about you and you know you know that they're the you're the object of their knowledge, right? They know something about you. They're making plans about you and you feel anxious. You're, you want to you know what they're saying. You don't want to go to bed. And, and yet somehow there's this sort of register of, of information that implicates you, that supersedes you, and that's being used by people who have more power than you and you don't have access to it. So that, it's that feeling of like um, anxious and, and Lacan even calls it like a paranoid feeling of, of there being information out there that's about you, but also there being people who have access to that information about you and to information in general that you don't. 
and that puts them in a position of power over you. I mean, I would also say, like, not to take away from from the, the, the paranoid reading of it is that there's also something profoundly soothing about the idea of the subject supposed to know, because it means that it doesn't have to be you, except if you are the person who has to be it, in which case it is also profoundly anxiety, uh, anxiogenic. Um, but if you like your parents... <laughs> <laughs> you know, it can actually feel pretty comforting. Um, or it can be comforting to have a confessor. It can be comforting to have a person who you believe has the answers because you don't have the answers, right? So it's, it's. I, I guess I just want to situate it in that register as well. Yeah, to think about like you come to a doctor and you're like, well, doctor, doctor, uh, I'm about to like lapse into some song. Like, doctor, doctor, listen to me, please. I've got these symptoms. Uh, and you know, like, what's going on with me, right? Tell me what I have. And it's beseeching, right? And, and the doctor is structurally in the position of knowing stuff about you that you don't know. They have the credentials. They can look at these documents. They can read the files. They know how to, you know, which way is up on an x-ray or whatever. And then <laughs> they can use that knowledge to help you, right? Uh, and, and that's that's a good thing. Uh, but also, you know, it's that can also that structure there of like you being beseeching of knowledge from another can like cash out in other ways too. That can also be kind of bad, right? Like yeah, think yeah, about yeah. the consultant who like leans over. You're working at work and someone <laughs> come compends over you at your cubicle or, or you know like in a classroom or like at the at the at the machine shop or whatever, and is like, huh? They're writing in a notepad. And they're like, oh, okay. So is is this what you? This is what you do all day, huh? Okay, okay. That's really interesting. That's fascinating. I should probably say that the reason we are going on about this, other than the fact that Patrick and I are both like very interested in in this particular um, position, I'm going to call it a position, um, because it's one that we both like anxiously inhabit, <laughs> um, is not only because the subject supposed to know is crucial for how the very scene of psychoanalysis operates, right? The psychoanalysis, the psychoanalyst is the sort of, in some ways, paradigmatic subject supposed to know. But also because, look, how do I, I want to put this sort of bluntly. Both Patrick and I spent, I don't know, less than a decade, but, you know, a long time in graduate programs to, to obtain a lot of the knowledge that we're using right now in, in ways that were, like, not necessarily, that, that were... Where, where a sort of engine for the creation of ideas was this dynamic of the subjects supposed to know, um, which is not, a, in, in my view, you know, however many, you know, 10 years out of grad school is not like a great way of learning. Um, and so when we set out to think about how we wanted to talk about psychoanalysis to a broader audience, we wanted to start by giving you this idea of the subject supposed to know and saying like, okay, one, we anxiously inhabit it. Um, but two, we're coming to this from a position of, of wanting to offer up and engage with all of the questions that people feel that they, that people feel are dumb questions, right? And thus like ought not to be asked, um, which I think is, is, is a, a fundamental mistake. Yeah. Yeah, I, I think this is this sort of is like a, a thing where we're like a, a point to sort of underscore here is like to think about how like, again, like 
knowledge isn't just what's in a book or what's on, you know, archived in, in ones and zeros or again, like inscribed on the plates we sent into the edge of the solar system on the Voyager probe, right? It's it, it, sure it is that abstractly speaking, but it's stuff that we have desires mm. for, right? We want it. It's stuff we are anxious about, right? When that doctor comes in and it makes a, a scary sounding noise as they look over a clipboard, like you, you want, you, you both desperately want to know what it is, but also you don't want to know what it is. It's also stuff where like you, you know, it, you are in a position of wanting to acquire yourself or thinking that simply having knowledge might change your life. In other words, it's knowledge is imbued with power and possibility and becomes a site for the construction of fantasy, right? And a lot of these fantasies are, and, and this isn't just Lacan. I mean, this is, I think, a very, as Abby gave the excellent example of the teacher, uh, really kind of like straightforwardly structural, mm-hmm. right? Like if you walk into a class, I mean, hell, I had a friend who used to do this sometimes on the first day of classes where he would get there a little, in college, he'd get there a little early <laughs> and he had a blazer with uh, the fucking shoulder pads, right? And he would... And I remember he did the best time he did is we were supposed to do a film. This is Jeremy, if you're listening to this, I love you. Uh, it was a class on the films of Brian De Palma, right? And so he came in right like the, the, the presser himself was a couple minutes late. So Jeremy comes in right as everyone else is you know, sitting around the, sitting around the table and the head of the table is empty. And then Jeremy immediately goes and sits at the head of the table and says, Scarface. Scarface. In this that's in this seminar. We will be watching Scarface every week <laughs> over and over again. And, and people were like, people started taking notes. And, 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 and of course, again, like it, the point here, it, there was a hilarious thing for him to do. But, but the point, and, and then the professor, Al Peretz, came in and was like, Jeremy, what are you doing? Go. But, but uh, <laughs> the, the deal there is that, like, it's a structural <laughs> thing, right? The person at the head of the classroom becomes the site of all these projections. They're supposedly the expert. Right. And just because they put on a certain performance of knowledge or they they have a certain type of self-presentation, an entire sort of social field is constructed around them, a whole bunch of relationships. Right. And and this is something that, you know, hell, this is also how a lot of trolling works. Or if you want to, like, get into a fight with someone. Right. When someone says something online or in real life, and you're like, oh, you would say that, wouldn't you? Now, you, that person may not even know you. But you suddenly are like, oh, this person must know something about me. I've shown my ass. They're calling me out in public. And you start to scramble, right? So we, we feel, to use another fancy psychoanalytical word that we'll talk about later when we talk about Louis Althusser, you feel interpolated, kind of sucked into this stuff. Knowledge is never just abstract, right? But like, so yeah, already we've given you like a couple of key ways to use this, this idea the subject's supposed to know. One, pretend to be someone who you are not professionally and then, you know, just reap the rewards. You could probably <laughs> use this to sell crypto if you wanted. I, I mean, hell, people have used this to sell crypto, right? Like everyone attributes knowledge to someone as being a guru or having the juice and then we give them money. But a, another sort of thing, and this is something that, that Abby, you kind of got at, and this has to do with sort of the the mode of this podcast, but also of some of the teaching I know you do at the Brooklyn Institute and that I do too, right? Is this way in which like, I think actual, the subjects to know, the the dynamics about the subjects to know is supposed to know can be very helpful because like, yeah, you need an instructor in a classroom, Mm -hmm. right? You need to have a doctor like who can interpret your signs uh, or not your signs, like your vital signs. Yeah. Or, or maybe you uh, look, you need, you need an astrologer too. You need a semiotician. You need a semiotician. Yeah. (laughs) 
but, 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 but like, yeah, like, like interpretation is a mutual thing. And like, you need someone sometimes who does have expertise, right? Like, I'm not gonna, it would really suck if like, you know, I, God forbid, like you go see an oncologist over, over something that's bothering you, like some suspicious looking lump they take a, a biopsy of. And then, and, and the doctor who's wearing the appropriate garb is like, I don't know, search me. What is knowledge anyways? Like, that, that's not what you want. You don't want Socrates to be like handling your chemo, right? God fucking forbid. But like the, the other half of this though, and, and this is, I think, is that we can think about a lot of what happens when people jockey for power in institutions or in conversation with one another as basically jockeying for the position of the subject supposed to know. Yeah. Um. Yeah. And, and actually I was, was going to ask you, Abby, I'm going to, I'm going to spin out a question uh, and, and, and you, you can tell me if this has ever happened or if you've ever seen this happen before. Okay. 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 okay the scene is we're, we're in a, someone's just given a public talk. Maybe even it could be just you giving a public talk. And let's, let's say the, let's say the talk is on, oh, I don't know. It's, it's on the work of some novelist or yeah, it's on the work of some novelist or a historical biographical presentation or something, right? Everyone claps politely and then it comes time for, for questions. Someone stands up and they say, that this was, this is more of a comment than a question. Exactly. This was a <laughs> wonderful, wonderful presentation. I, I really appreciate your doing it. And, and I have a question, or really it's more of a comment than a question. And then they say, you said such and such, or you mentioned this in this text. And, and well, that was really interesting. And the word interesting hangs for a second. You've heard this before. Oh, I, yeah. Had it happened to me many times. And I was just really interested in Sometimes I teach my students to do this if they want to be really passive aggressive. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I can't tell you. Uh, I, I, and I couldn't help but notice, you know, in your brilliant discussion of, um, I don't know, uh, Herman Melville's Bartleby the Scrivener, how you leaned on this one particular metaphor. And, well, of course, I'm, I'm sure you're aware, but uh, in his letters to his mistress, Herman Melville also uses this term and mentions how he had read such and such a French author who had a similar story based upon this concept. And I was just really curious if you could relate those two things uh, those two other texts, the letters to his mistress and uh, this forgotten French author, to what you just said, because it would seem to require some revision of your hypothesis. So just tell me, imagine you just gave this talk. How are you feeling when someone does this to you? Pissed off. But also, I mean, like, symbolically castrated. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> yeah. You were holding knowledge. You were having power. <laughs> you, you had, the, and then boom. And of course, like. I went from being the person with the mic to, yeah, yeah, yeah. To I having the camera. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And then, and I mean, like, so I guess like, and this is the, the, the follow-up to it. What do we learn how to do in grad school when this happens? What's the best possible maneuver that you can respond to, to when someone does that? I didn't hear a question there. Okay. That's actually, that's, that's better than what I have. <laughs> <laughs> you have some fraud. I mean, what I was taught, or rather what I was not really, again, these are lessons that you're taught through institutions that brutalize you, you sort of pick off along the way, is you, you nod and you, even if you've never heard of this, these letters or that book, you nod as though you did read it and are aware of it. And then you say, well, you know, that's really interesting. But honestly, you know, I, I was thinking much more about, and then you mention a third author or a third text, which is even more close to what that person is saying. And have they read that by chance? Maybe this is something we could talk about later, right? So in other words, you, you, 
you don't have because you haven't read those first things, right? And because you probably who knows, maybe that the motherfucker that gave a question that was a comment didn't read it either. You pivot to producing the effect, an erudition effect, let's call it, of having that yeah. knowledge. And basically you just bullshit a little bit better and then move forward. I feel like in this context, I want to tell the story of how we first met. Yeah, sure. Which was uh, like before we actually really met. And I guess I should probably say that Patrick and I are married. I feel like it's like, yeah. I mean, whatever, like, you know, Freud, love and work. Like we're, we're going all in on, on, on that right now. Um, before we actually like really met, we were introduced at at a conference, but it was like a party at a conference. And someone was like, oh, Patrick knows all this stuff about Lacan. And like, oh, he's so brilliant, this and that, the other thing. And, and the same person, I guess, said a lot of nice things about me. I met him and I was like, this seems exhausting. <laughs> and it wasn't anything that you said, right? It was more, I was like, I was like, I have to give a paper and I'm already in this position of like feeling like other people are going to jump on me and think less of me. And I have to like, you know, create this, tiny fragments of self-esteem that I can that I can uh, put together from all of that that graduate school has done to me and I just like I couldn't I couldn't so we talked for like two minutes and and then you know much later you were like oh yeah I thought the same I thought I thought that that was just not gonna yeah the same guy who tried to introduce who tried to introduce uh, me to you had previously come up to me and like oh you just have to meet this person she knows everything about like Kristeva and Arigurai and all these other French theorists or whatever and i remember being like i have just been teaching all day i'm exhausted i am only at this party because i want to sneak into your treehouse and smoke a joint i, I don't Which is exactly what you did like one minute it's after exactly i met you what i did uh actually as a blunt now that i think it was a swisher's mango or something like that. It, it, it was amazing the, the point here like a proustian reminiscence is opening up the point here is that i was terrified by you mm -hmm. and exhausted by the idea so we didn't have an encounter right Right. And, and, that, and then yeah, no. years later, we met again and uh, shortly afterwards made a rule that we were never going to pretend that we had read any books that we hadn't. And we still call this the basic rule. This is the basic rule is you never pretend that you haven't read any books you haven't or even that you haven't seen any, like, you know, any TV shows that you haven't um, just because it kind of opts out of this. And, and, and this is all by way of saying that that is that is. That is sort of the approach is like, you know, if, if we don't know things, like there's tons of things I don't know about psychoanalysis, right? Um, you know, we're going to say that. And I also feel like since we've been doing tons and tons of ground clearing here, yeah. all in the name of the ground clearing of being like, what is psychoanalysis? What we're kind of doing is a kind of clinical sort of sneaking up on the symptom. Um, and of course, as symptoms do, it has been like continuing to elude us. But I feel like what I'd like to do now, now that we've given you the basic rule, yeah. all right, you got the basic rule. What we want to do is pivot and inhabit that, you know, vexed position of the subject supposed to know for a little bit to give you a whole host of provisional definitions of psychoanalysis, starting with the historical. Yeah. So, so like, let's just, let's, let's, yeah, let's dive into this. And, and again, like, this is, we're going to give repetitious definitions of what this is but the point here is to give you more rather than less and also with an eye towards the subject of supposed to know stuff for you to not feel like you have to know everything 
or that you have to defer to authorities who seem they know to know everything because by definition no one can know everything and anyone who is pretending or seems to know everything is generally trying to work over something on you or is trying to sell you something yeah right so it's a grift it's a grift. It's 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 uh, it's a grift. We could we could isolate characters from the pundit to the the crypto bro to a lot of other things. But, okay, like, but let's talk yeah, about let's, the talking cure. Let's, let's go back the, to yeah. the beginning. Let's talk about the talking cure. And, and and let's and let's just sort of say something very uh, that should be obvious, right? But like to the extent to which there now exists a thing called psychotherapy, right, or therapy in general, where basically you go into a room with someone who does not know anything about you per se, right? It's not like an expert on you, is not the absolute authority on you, right? But instead uh, asks you questions about how you're feeling and what's going on in your life and what's your family history and what are your relationships and what are you struggling with and what do you want to do and are you using substances, etc. In other words, a person who listens and asks questions and connects dots in a way that ideally provokes change in you, that encounter, that therapeutic endeavor has its historical roots in the practice of psychoanalysis, right? So just to, 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 to put a pin in a little through line here, right? Like the psychotherapist and the psychoanalyst specifically is not, is in the paradoxical position of being a person you come to for help, who you tell all sorts of things and who presumably improves your life, hopefully, but they're not like an objective expert in you because they haven't met you until you started talking, right? And that is sort of the, the genesis of the psychoanalytic enterprise. And, and, and look, people can, we, we can, maybe at some future points we can talk about earlier sort of modes of both therapy or uh, uh, religious practices or folk practices that have some features of this. And that's, you know, absolutely true. But like it is the work of Sigmund Freud in the 1890s, who essentially uh, working with a body of patients who at the time were called hysterical neurotics, which is another thing that we'll, you know, we'll talk about down mm-hmm. the line, uh, decided that instead of, I don't know, like electrocuting them or dunking them in cold water or poking them in weird ways or penetrating them with various objects, he would simply, well, ask them what was going on. He would listen. Yeah, it, it, it was an orientation towards... Uh, talking towards reflection, towards self-reflection, asking about things like dreams, anxieties, nightmares, fantasies, etc. Uh, about things that had happened in their childhood and things that had happened in their recent life. Uh, Freud himself would go back and forth in this. Sometimes he, he initially tried to hypnotize people, but also after a while I realized he was much more interested in just listening to people talk. And also, we also did, he was bad at hypnosis. I feel like that's like an important yeah. important historical notice for it. it was like really bad at hypnosis. Bad at hypnosis. Uh, can we talk a little bit about Freud's mentor, Josef Breuer, and about Anna O, who is in some ways, who, who coins the phrase the talking cure and who is in some ways the founding patient? Yeah. Do you want to take that lead? Or, I mean, I think... I think we'll probably wind up doing an episode or two specifically on hysteria and and, yeah. sort of, and the genesis of, of this stuff. But. For sure. But I mean, I, I do think we want to talk about the genesis of the very idea that that symptoms are something that can be transformed into language yeah. um, and done away with. And I do think that begins with Anna. 
Okay, so yes, so, so this is, I guess, I mean, this is also helpful too because it allows us to ground the idea of psychoanalysis and the therapeutic endeavor in, well, you know, healing, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, and, and, and again, let's just stipulate that this is something we'll talk about later. I can think of a bunch of authors and specialists who I think we may have on to, to talk mm-hmm. about this specifically, but like uh, there is a, in the late 19th century, there is a definable, fairly large population consisting of both men and women who uh, exhibit signs of a disorder that is at the time called hysterical neurosis, right? Uh, You'll note I'm hedging a lot of things here, like a disorder called at the time, et cetera. And one of the things that I think we're going to need to get, uh, get a handle on as we do some of this stuff historically is working through terms that don't necessarily mean the same things that they do today or have come to take on additional um, negative stigmatizing meaning that they don't necessarily have or have in quite the same sense at the time. But, but be that as it may, you have a population of people who succinctly put are exhibiting behaviors that seem to be uh, neurological in their cause. Hence neuro, hence this sort of like idea of like neurology or, or like the neurosis as being related to the emergent dis- discipline. To of the neurology. nerves. Yes. Yeah. To the nerves. Um, but that don't have a clear cause in damage to the nervous system. So, for example, they're doing stuff like having seizures, uh, but they're not epileptic. They are fainting uh, onto couches. They have a they're po- having pains that have no seeming organic origin. They have a paralysis of the limb or a paralysis of the arm, and sometimes too, these are paralyses that are that don't actually map on to how the nerves and the arms are actually uh, work. Yeah, anatomically. Like, yeah, right. you can like test this by like poking them in various ways, but it, 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 to put it broadly, in, in terms of more modern uh, neurology or, or psychology, these are disorders of um, th- these are functional disorders, right? They're deform- they're disorders of performance rather than capacity. Right. So whatever it is that's inhibiting them from um, using that arm, seeing through that eye or, uh, you know, uh, that causes them to fall asleep on that fainting account at inopportune times is not a organic disorder, but instead must be involved some sort of damage. Freud uses the word trauma, a wound Mm -hmm. to somewhere else in their person on some other level than the body and what he calls the psyche, right? And hysterical neurotics are treated quite horribly by the medical establishment at the time, right? Uh, oftentimes very heavy-handed and, and, and brutal ways, whereas uh, what Freud, from all the dunking to what's called cusping, which is basically induced orgasm and is kind of horrifying, but, but, but all that aside, what Freud does, uh, studying in, in Paris at the time, is he pioneers the discipline of just talking to these people, and specifically to women, male because there's a large population that are women, and you know there there were male hysterics, but you know in the historical memory, there women occupy a much more prominent place for for reasons that we can talk about at some future point. But, TLDR is yeah. that uh, the word hysteria uh, is 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 derived from the word for uterus, and uh, although Freud did not himself subscribe to the idea that hysteria was the uterus wandering around the body, that is the origin of the term. Yeah, exactly. Um, but Freud, like basic Freud's practice, is essentially to just do extensive sessions of talking to these two people, asking them questions like, well, when did this symptom first happen, right? Or when did, when did this behavior first occur? Or what does it remind you when this, what happens to the people around you when this happens? Or like, does this remind you of anything? Or what is the meaning of this term to you? In other words, he tries to get them to do 
what he will later call free associate mm -hmm. um, and otherwise to just produce language describing their situation. And also I would say, and I'm, I'm thinking there's, there's, there's a famous line in uh, studies on hysteria, which is 1895. And it's a series of case studies. The first one is of Anna O, who I promise we will talk about in a few minutes, uh, um, who is Joseph Breuer, jo jo ugh, Freud's mentors, um, patient, and the rest are Freud's patients. Um, but there's a famous line where uh, Breuer and Freud say hysterics suffer mainly from reminiscences. So a lot, I just, I think the clarification I'm making here is that they are producing verbiage, yes, but a lot of it is also memories. Like that's what they're working with specifically is with memories. And, and Freud uh, concludes, and this is by, again, this is one of the ways in which this is, you know, much as Freud basically gives us the practice of therapy, Freud is also responsible in different ways for like the idea of psychic trauma as being different from other types of injuries. Yes. Right. He describes this, the bear, the precipitating injury, the thing that causes these hysterical neurotics to have these, uh, florid symptoms, right. Uh, he situates in their having suffered a trauma in the past mm -hmm. quintus paradigmatically a sexual trauma, whether it be a rape, a sexual assault, or a, a, a fantasy that occurred to them that was unable that they couldn't tolerate, et cetera. His, his theories on this change. But the idea here, and this is sort of the key point is that in contrast to wounds to the organic body, right? Like a damage to a nerve that doesn't heal or your mm -hmm. arm that gets broken and then it remodels, right? Freud postulates that, things can happen to a person that through mechanisms that are complicated and we'll talk about later uh, and that he himself revises his theories on, but things can happen to a person that can down, down the line, jam them up, cause them suffering, cause them to have these uh, ex experiences of acute suffering. And that the way, in other words, they don't heal naturally on their own. There isn't a, a natural mechanism for this. And that actually the way to, arrive at healing and to arrive at symptom alleviation is through putting them into words in a therapeutic relationship. Yeah. And the reason that I wanted to talk about Anna, who again is not Freud's patient, this is earlier, um, is because, you know, there is this language of like psychoanalysis is the talking cure. It is important that, um, and we will, we will spend many, many episodes talking about the gender dynamics um, of psychoanalysis and the uses of psychoanalysis for feminism, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but it is important that women are at the very origins of uh, the founding of, the, of this. I guess you could call it a discipline. You could call it a field. You can call it a practice. You can call it any number of things. Um, but it is a patient herself not because this is a symmetrical relationship between doctor and patient, but because it is a verbal practice. She is the one, um, Anna, whose real name was Bertha Pappenheim, she's the one who calls it the talking cure. And in a lot of ways, she's the one who discovers it. Um, as much as Breuer, who uh, honestly, because for a whole suite of reasons, the, the most sort of dramatic among them being that Anna O suffers uh, a hysterical pregnancy at some point. There's This is way before anybody has discovered transference. Breuer runs absolutely away from this whole situation um, and, you know, out of the picture. And Freud, like, has to convince him <laughs> to have this included in, in studies on hysteria because he doesn't look that good in it. And there's all, there's all, uh, there's whole parts of the story that don't make their way into the actual case study for, for these reasons. Um, 
But there is a way in which psychoanalysis emerges through people listening to women. And that I think is actually an important thing for us to flag at the beginning of this. Yeah. I'm hoping we'll be able to talk to Elizabeth Danto or to, to any of several other historians, but like who have focused on this, but there, there is a real way in which like what the core of the Freudian enterprise is at the beginning. And what I think the core of a lot of therapy is, is instead of adopting a position of like the subject who is supposed to know and who knows better, who basically like one glance at a patient and you're like, oh, I know what your problem is. Or like, let me tell you what you went wrong. Or let me just throw some words at you or give you this bottle of pills and then you'll be better. Uh, is instead a practice of attuned listening and dialogue. Yes. And that practice, which sometimes is called, you know, you encourage free association, but some psychoanalysts, and this is an example of, you know, many opinions among psychoanalysts, will sometimes describe psychoanalysis, free association as the goal of psychoanalysis mm -hmm. rather than just its method. I, once you're able to free associate, then you've been cured. But, but the point here, though, is that simply listening to someone and dignifying their problems and dignifying their suffering by understanding how it operates on the level of meaning and speculating as to what be, could be the precipitating causes of it is a, a really radical gesture. And, you know, there are ways in which we will vigorously critique Freud and many of his successors for uh, whether it be misogyny or, or their patriarchal dimensions or just clinical errors that they make. That attunement to the suffering other, yeah. to listening to them on their own words, is a radical thing. It is. And, and I, I feel like I want us to move us away from... I mean, not away from the historical, but towards a series of um, propositions, let's yeah. say, provisional uh, provisional definitions of what psychoanalysis is. And, and so one of the things that you're making me think of right now, um, and, and this relates to everything that we've been saying about the subject supposed to know um, also, is that psychoanalysis is fundamentally an epistemological stance, okay? Um, and there's a line, sorry, you can already tell that the half of the way that I think is by, is, is I'm, I'm very verbal. <laughs> so I, th this is, this is not Freud. It's, it, it's Nietzsche, but who thinks, you know, very much in parallel with Freud, there's this line from the beginning of genial, the genealogy of morals, where he says, we are not men of knowledge with respect to ourselves. Um, that's, that to me is a very good encapsulation of the stance um, that psychoanalysis, whether or not you are actually an analyst or an analyst, right? This is a thing that you can learn from psychoanalysis also without being engaged in it in that particular kind of way. Um, it, it, it is a proposition that not knowing rather than knowing is the fundamental relation to the self and to the other. And, and perhaps if you want to extrapolate to the world. And, and that, I think, emerges... The reason I'm, I'm stringing this together here is that emerges out of that practice of listening and attunement, right? Is that, that is humbling as fuck, right? <laughs> to really, really listen to the other. That's, I think, so, so if I, if I can, I want to, uh, at the risk of, of, of being like seeming simplistically didactic, I want to like really, I want to gloss that I'll term. I'll allow it. <laughs> I, say, I want to gloss that term epistemological, yeah, right? Please. As, as like. So epistemology, right, is we, we could describe as like the systematic, um, a systematic study of or theory of how we know things or of how knowledge is produced, right? 
Yeah. So, and, and it's, it's not a, uh, a set of dogmas or teachings or orthodoxies, but rather it's a stance, like a position that you would adopt in, oh, I don't know, jujitsu or kung fu or something, or a, uh, it's a position of, uh, that's capable of change and isn't necessarily tethered to, to continually vindicating certain principles or, or, or truths or whatever, but is about processing information in a self-reflective, self-critical, ongoing way. Um, and I should, I should say just to mm-hmm. uh, sort of like tie a bow on the historical stuff, you know, which we then may untie later, right? Whether what, what, what Freud does and then what other tens of thousands of psychoanalysts have done since and people who are not necessarily psychoanalysts but who have drawn on his work or have drawn open in the spaces open by this is to produce uh, a, a, what we could call, to use the, the, the German word, a Wissenschaft, which is a body of knowledge, mm-hmm. right? And, and that's a term that's distinct from like an academic discipline, i.e. it's not like a department you go get a degree in, and it's different from like a, a, a hard science per se. Um, though I should say there are rapprochements with science and there are places in the world where you can get a degree in psychoanalysis, right? But, um, but, but that body of knowledge has, let's, let's, let's call it for our purposes now initially, like three dimensions, right? One of which we've already talked about is the, is the clinical, it's the therapeutic. It's someone, it's training people, a professional set of people to respond to the suffering of individuals who come to them for help, right? Uh, and so there's professionalization involved in this. There, uh, there's a model implicitly of healing that has to come from this. There are best practices for how this works, et cetera. So that's the clinical, the therapeutic. And that's like, there's an entire set of data of case histories that comes from that. The second one, and, and I should say all three of these dimensions imply one another, and different psychoanalysts will sometimes do a little bit of one dimension, a little bit of the other. Freud continually cycles between all of them, but this is also part of what makes psychoanalysis so cool, right? So there's, a, there's the therapeutic praxis, and then in order to have a therapeutic praxis, and also because you're getting data from the therapeutic praxis, you develop a a more general theory of how the mind works mm-hmm. or how, what, what you could call psychic agencies. People may have heard of things like the superego, the ego data, which we'll talk about again later, right? But you produce models of mind. You produce uh, theories of how, as, as you encounter more patients over time, you certain to see they have certain similar patterns, certain similar traumas, certain similar defense mechanisms, to use another term we'll encounter. So you develop a, a theory of, pathology of how the mind can be damaged, of how psychic trauma works, right? Uh, And then presumably also you will develop a certain theory of what relatively normal uh, behavior looks like. Now note here, we're using all this hedging because part of what goes on with psychoanalysis in that self-reflective way is a deeply, well, ambivalent stance towards the concepts of normality and pathology. Yeah. Right? These are... um, psychoanalytic thought, you know, there are, of course, have been psychoanalysts who have been very reactionary in certain ways, but I think at its best and its most generative, and certainly for us here, psychoanalysis is all about uh, uh, working in the level of the descriptive over and against the normative. Yes. Right? And so uh, this second dimension, right, the clinical, we could call a second one like the psychological or the metapsychological, right? These are models of mind, models of pathology, that help explain what happens in the clinical sec- segment and that you can then use in, uh, to make broader discussions about how people work, you know, in general. 
And then the third dimension of it, which is the one that I think probably may have brought most people here uh, to the podcast, is certainly something that like animates my work, or, or I think it's a, it, it certainly was a major preoccupation for Freud during his later years, uh, is what we could basically kind of crudely call like the applied psychoanalytic sort of dimension. Putting culture on the couch. Yeah, it's it's where it's where we take these models of uh, individual pathology, but also of how the the mind works, right, to process events and to experience, etc., or what pathology looks like, what obsession, what aggression looks like in individuals, etc., to investigate institutions, uh, historical developments, group behavior. Uh, literary texts, productions of considerable sophistication, and so on, right? And that's why there's a ton of that. It's it's that last dimension that's been particularly inspirational for people in other fields, from 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 film directors to uh, to novelists to uh, visual artists to video game designers, you, you name it, right? But but there the idea is that many those same principles of like listening to the other being attuned to patterns, being attuned to the things you don't know and the possibilities of how what you don't know will may surprise you that become a major, those are defining features. And, and a lot of psychoanalytic work sort of traverses those three dimensions. Yeah. I mean, you're bringing me to, to what I would think of as, a, as another kind of way in here. And, and, you know, you're talking about the artistic, you're talking about the literary at the, at the end here. Like you don't have deconstruction without psychoanalysis, right? Um, I, I guess one of the, the things that I have found the most, I don't know, I, I don't want to use the word useful because that that's, takes us into that register of cash value. And that's like actually not where I want to go right now. Um, I, I would call psychoanalysis a sort of um, wager on the inexhaustibility of meaning, right? Um Think about free association just for a minute. And, you know, as you pointed out, right, it's actually a lot harder to free associate than it seems like it should be um, to the point where some people think like once you can do it, well, then you can terminate. Interminability, right? The idea that if you take take one utterance, there's always some other place that you can go from it. This actually seems to me like a, a profoundly sort of anti-modern stance in, in some way, Um and I mean that as a compliment, I think. But to to me, there is there is something profoundly optimistic about this. Um, there is always in language going to be something more. There is always in the psyche going to be something more. There is always in interpersonal relationships going to be something more. Um, you can keep following those associations or those. Um, since we've been we've been kind of ripping on Lacan here, those chains of signifiers um, through metaphor and through metonymy, um, you can just keep going. There's always more to be read. There's always more to be known. There's always more to be thought. Um, and and that is not an insight that you need to be a clinician to do something with. I think that's really beautiful and and and, and beautifully put. And that brings us, I think, to the second probably kind of a closeout concept for us today, which is a both characteristic of psychoanalysis and I think has, you know, cash value, but also philosophical profundity to it. And it's the concept we're going to put alongside ambivalence, which is a concept uh, that you may have heard of or, or may even use the word yourself, uh, which is over-determination. 
right? The idea of things being overdetermined. The best way to understand what that means is, is probably to do one more sort of return to Freud here and, and think about why he uses, he picks this phrase, which initially picks in French and then, you know, translates into German and then we get in English in the early 1900s of psychoanalysis. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. Right? Uh, and, and like why analysis? Uh, and, and Freud is, is is very deeply versed in the classical tradition. He's very, you know, he's, in fact, the the, the uh, when we alluded earlier to the like the psychoanalysis is an impossible profession in in that line in that remarkable uh, final essay of Freud's analysis terminal one terminable. He's actually you know he'll draw alongside other impossible professions, namely teaching, right, <laughs> and or, or being a political leader and probably even parenting, right, where these are all like impossible things, but sort of necessary things. And mm-hmm. just because it's impossible, doesn't mean you, you nobody you does don't them. have to do it. Yeah. No, like it's precisely because they're impossible that you keep doing it. Yeah. Right. Um, he needed a little Zizek voice there. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but also too, like this is, this is a one way of, I think one way, and maybe we'll talk about uh, like some readings of Freud's ethics, like and people like Jonathan Lear will read mm-hmm. him in the tradition of what's known as, as like a classical virtue ethics, right? Where instead of there being like a whole series of specific goods that are absolute and eternal and uh, that you can sort of vindicate or uphold. Instead, uh, goodness consists in a, in a series of practices or a series of repeated behaviors, or you even call it like a stance of cultivating habits ongoing through life, right? And, and Freud is very attuned to this type of stuff. And so when he uses the word, that's a whole tradition, right? So when he uses uh, the word analysis, he's drawing on classical Greek thought, uh, to do this. And he's drawing on specifically uh, classical Greek sort of, by, the distinction between like mathematics and philosophy is, you know, sort of subsequent, but like one of those initial, uh, that era when like the mathematical and the philosophical and the logical were all kind of together. And he's referring specifically to sort of processes of, of, of what, what the Greeks called analysis as opposed to synthesis, Right. This is. I'm going to dwell on this for a second because I think it's it's really helpful and will help us then understand this concept called overdetermination. Right? Analysis is about like taking a thing. It's starting with a big thing. It's starting with a thing that's messy and is an ostensible totality. Right? It's 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 starting with uh, the patient that walks into your office, uh, the the political situation, um, or a simple symptom that just means so much. Right? And then you start to break it down into its constitutive elements, right? You start to tease out what parts of it, what, what, one, what, what this bit may mean, what this other bit may mean, to see how they interact and how they, are produce, how they produce things, right? In other words, it's about um, working with sort of what's given um, and it's about kind of deconstructing it in the sense of taking it apart and uh, maybe arriving logically at certain conclusions through what you could call a po- process of induction, right? You've got stuff on the table and you work backwards from it. That is opposed to synthesis, right? Where synthesis you can think about more as like, well, here are a bunch of a priori's, here are a bunch of principles, here are a bunch of Lego blocks that you then build up to make a thing, right? Uh, and you produce sort of deductively from that. Now, Freud does deductive thinking. Sometimes there's nothing wrong with synth- synthetic thought, et cetera, right? But, but the analytic orientation in, in, in this sense and, and the idea why he's 
uses this to describe his entirety of his project and why it's persisted is because human behavior and human life is not given to us in tiny little discrete functional units, but is instead a giant messy thing, right? It's a giant messy thing that means a ton of things for the people involved, but also, and this is Abby underscore something you have been have been restating uh, extremely lucidly, right? This idea that it can mean, it can continue to mean things and mean many different things to people at the same time and in ways that you keep coming back to, right? Uh, the idea there being that you have stuff which is on the level of meaning, uh, almost inexhaustible. It can mean multiple things to multiple people. That's we are. Here's a callback to like our defining psychoanalysis is having multiple meanings for for multiple observers, right? But also too, uh, there's a, this notion of overdetermination again of a, having a surplus of meaning, right? Of having too many meanings to be narrowly determined, also ramifies on the level of causality. So these are two senses of overdetermination. One. Surplus of meaning. Mm-hmm. And then the second one is an idea of multiple parts or multiple precipitating things working together to produce that kind of gestalt totality. Yeah. But where the sum is bigger than the parts and where we can't necessarily identify any of those individual parts as being the sine qua non, absolutely necessary, solitary, singular, determinative thing. It's not as predictable as that. It's much more complex. Yeah. And we're going to get like more into this when we talk about dreams because overdetermination is also like one of the, the mechanism that, well, it's, it's at work in the mechanisms that produce uh, the elements of our dreams. Yeah, exactly. And, and that, and, and, and I think we'll, we'll be able to find that like in, in Freud's account of humor and other things. I think. Yeah. Me, do you want to give an, ex- like some, yeah. like a real, like, I mean, I, I, I'm into the analysis synthesis, yeah. induction, deduction stuff, but like, I, I feel like there, there's, I bet at the tips of, of your fingers, you have like a real yeah. <laughs> example. I've got a bunch of them. Right, right. And I think maybe we could, we could, we can supply some other ones too. Right. Like one, like the idea of overdetermination. So again, two, 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 two dimensions of this meaning and precipitating causes, yeah. right. Ingredients and message might be another way of framing this. Right. I would suggest that lots of good works of art, mm-hmm. right, are overdetermined, right? You don't necessarily know what the ending means. In fact, part of what makes it so awesome is that the ending can maybe mean many different things at once, right? Think about all the people being like, well, you know, like in such and such a story, this person represents this, this person represents that, and this person represents this, and then the moral is that this thing is bad. Like, okay, that's, that's okay, <laughs> fine. I mean, that's a type of story. That's generally not one you go back and reread. Right. Whereas people are still fighting over the ending of the Sopranos. Right. right? Does do, do they stay in that diner? Do they get killed? Is the diner hell? Who knows? All these things are possible at once. Like yes. Over- the, the multiplicity of meanings like is on display. Exactly. Yeah. Um, but think about like not even just like a conscious work of art, but just like think about like in a single nugget of human communication, the sheer amount of information that can be conveyed that you don't even consciously register. Right. And this is where we can also get into the causality stuff. Think about like all the stuff that's activated. And here we can go back to the subject supposed to know too. When, I don't know, when, when a teacher who you've only had for a semester says, oh, that's pretty typical of you, isn't it? Right. Or you would do that, wouldn't you? Right. Or think about like a, a conversation you may have had with a parent or a caregiver or a loved one where they say just one word. Or they invoke one episode 
in your past. Oh, like the time we went to Disneyland or like, oh, yeah, you don't like vacuuming, do you? And if you were just reading this as a transcript, as a third party, you'd be like, okay, now they're talking about, you know, a vacation. I'm now feeling personally about- attacked by that vacuuming comment, by the way. <laughs> <I'm sorry. laughs> I, 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 I have deliberately chosen an overdetermined <laughs> example of overdetermination here to, to, to really drive this point home, right? But like, imagine you're a third party reading this. You're like, okay, now they're talking about this. Now they're talking about that. What's the big point? But if, if any of us have ever had like a, a heated dispute with a loved one, or have, or, or have felt shamed by a parent, it happens in microseconds. And you know that that vacuum or that trip to Disneyland, it's, it's not just not about, about the vacuum. No, it's a, it means much more than that. And, and so it's, it's, the meaning is overdetermined. You have to unpack the meaning to understand why, like one moment you two were hugging and everything was fine. And now you're on opposite sides of the room. And maybe one of you is thinking about a divorce. I probably don't think about a divorce. Oh my uh, God. I, I, just, I, I just, I'm trying, I'm trying to go ham here. Cause I think it's actually very helpful. Right. Like, um, the the but think too so that's the level of meaning right like the meaning of our micro encounters is 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 the built up residue of so many different encounters we've had our associations our dreams our vulnerabilities and we have this sort of like idiolect or dialect between two people that makes it super saturated such that it means many things or so many things to us at once yeah but then there's also the causal dimension of this, right? This idea that multiple things can come together to produce an outcome that is greater than the sum of its parts and which was not necessarily predictable, right? Um, this is a good, this is another helpful thing to think about, right? It's, it's, it's examples that are more abstract might be, I don't know, the fact that like whenever everyone wants to explain why like there's a school shooting or something terrible happens, right? Well, why did this person become violent now? You will have people inevitably in this subject supposed to know thing being like, well, it was the violent video games or it was X, Y, Z. It was, it was, it was this pill they were taking, or it was like this sort of like bad movie that they watched the night before. In other words, like here are these monocausal accounts, but of course, millions of people play those video games. Millions of people are on that medication. Millions of people have bad days. They don't all do this. If, if you could, you, you may or may not be able to suggest that one factor is, has a weighted role in this incident. But that isn't the same thing as guaranteeing that that's the cause, nor still does it allow you to predict how it'll happen in other cases and then let alone like be a warrant for eliminating those, like banning those video games or something, right? But to return to this example of the fight between two people who love one another, right? This is a very overdetermined example. I, I've, I've deliberately picked it for that because I think it'll land, it'll land with people that are listening. Okay. <laughs> I'm not, I promise I'm not litigating anything with you right now. I promise. Let's say you, you are... You're, you're home visiting your parents, you're home visiting your care, caregivers, or your, your partner and you are, are, are talking, and then find, one of you says something that to a third party would seem to be innocent, but to you, before you even know it, spikes something and now you're upset. And every single fight you've had prior to that flares up. Again, this thing- It's this, crystallized. It's crystallized, yeah. This is good. We can go back to Freud in this. Like the idea that psychic wounds or bruises- they, they don't. They heal. don't resolve on their own. Yeah, they, and and they don't have a different. They have a different temporality of healing, and they can open up in a way that's like, you know, like you can open up a scar while it's still healing because, or rather, you can open up. Like, you can pick like a scar, like scar. A you scab. Also, a scab. That's the word. Thank you. Yeah, you can pick a scab, but like the psyche scabs over, and it you can't like reopen the exact same wound once your skin is healed, right? The psyche is though is like a continual kind of bleeding, right? Um, in this way, to get to the point though, you can never. No, even the people in the argument themselves may not know for sure why it was this specific thing, this specific mention of the trip to Disneyland, or this specific moment 
when someone did or didn't do the chores that produced this fight. Or they may be able to, to say like, well, it probably was going to happen at some point, and this is a likely space it would. But even making that determination has to acknowledge the giant sum of previous causes that built up to that, which are singular to the people in question, to the relationship in question, right? Mm -hmm. So overdetermination in this sense is about like the inexhaustibility of meaning. And it's also about the emergence of meaningful phenomena from a plurality of um, non-reducible causes, right? And that's the stuff of life. Like that's why, that's how people's hearts get broken or that's how you fall in love or that's how you you decide, like why, why is this the one day that you finally decide you don't want to go to your work anymore, right? Maybe there's some like camel, this rather breaks the camel's back, but maybe it's a lot of other things. And exploring those meanings and understanding ways in which our minds or like our, our, our psyches can somehow make decisions or lead us to places that we weren't consciously aware of beforehand is sort of where the rubber hits the road with this stuff. And I think it's where, where a psychoanalytic perspective uh, is helpful. To say nothing of how we could also bring all this to bear, and, and I really hope we do in subsequent episodes, on like political decisions or the decisions of groups. Yeah, I mean, there, look, there's we're we're going to stop talking in in, in a couple of minutes because we we could, I mean, talking speaking about interminability, the inexhaustibility of meaning, we could be in this room for for a really really long time. Um, I want to offer up one slightly more optimistic um, vision, um, just kind of by way of valediction for for today, which is also psychoanalysis is about what can happen with two people in a room talking to each other, right? Uh, again, I think that's something we can linger with for for a while. Um, but there is a sort of infinite possibility that is that is present in in that. So before we go, uh, some housekeeping stuff. Uh, This is our first episode. If you like this first episode, please follow us on Twitter, Instagram, uh, and on whatever podcast platform you follow uh, podcasts on. And please rate and review us as as producing content that, you know, you you want to... Give give us five stars. I don't, I don't fucking know. Uh, also, like, give us please do give us feedback. Like, whether that means like like commenting on uh, moments on the SoundCloud where we spoke too quickly, or rather, I spoke too quickly, or we used words you didn't say, or hell, you had your own free associations. Engage with us on that. Engage with us on Twitter, please. Um, Ask we, us questions. We'll answer them. We'll are, try to answer them. There are no stupid questions. Like truly, there aren't. Like in some ways, the questions like big psychoanalytic lesson here. Sometimes the questions that are the most obvious or the most painful to ask are the most important ones. Yeah. Right. And to use another psychoanalytic phrase, it's all grist for the mill. Like we're going to use it all. So there's no, the the only shame or anxiety you should feel is if you, well, I don't want you to feel any of that, but it is if you like, bury <laughs> it's down a burning question. Yeah. You put, put the shame and anxiety, good use and ask questions. Yeah. I'll give you, I'll give you another version of that, which is when I use with my students all the time, which is when I'm teaching them, teaching them, telling them why they, why they ought to read the footnotes is a nice Freudian lesson is that the 
the things that often seem the most marginal are or the most peripheral are actually what is most central. So that's another sort of exhortation, another version of an exhortation to, to ask questions. Also, we're so we'll, we'll be figuring out the format of this as we go along. But they're gonna, please stay tuned for future episodes involving. Uh, it's not just going to be the two of us. We're going to have guests. We're going to involve Dan and stuff. We're going to be doing other multimedia things. Like, look, basically, if you want to stay fully on top of stuff and get on our mailing list, uh, find your way to our, to our Patreon. Sign up. Uh, you will get all sorts of goodies and all sorts of access down the line. Um, this is going to be interminable, but in the best possible in a, in a way. really good way. We mean that in a good way. Um, way. So thank you so much for listening. This has been an episode of Ordinary Unhappiness in collaboration with Parapraxis Magazine. I'm Abby Kluchin with Patrick Blanchfield. This podcast is produced by Dan Yowell, music by Formal Chicken. <laughs>